2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. And welcome to Climactic. Today, things are a little bit fishy as we talk sustainable seafood. But before we get into all that, we have a new host to welcome to the Climactic Collective. So I just wanted to take this moment to introduce Climactic listeners to the newest host, newest member of the Climactic Collective, Eve. You want to say hi? Hello. Hello. So how did you come to be involved with this crazy ramshackle group of uh, climate podcasters? Uh, well, I listened to a few episodes, as people do. Oh, that, that'll get you. That's a problem right there. Yeah. And then saw that you were looking for hosts and input online. And so I filled out the form. And here I am. Look, I'm trying Simple to think as what, that. What, what form that is. Yeah, there was a Google Doc thing. That's right. Yeah, you filled out our guest form, which uh, you can find in the show notes to this episode as well. So if you too want to join the Climactic Collective, you can just fill out our guest questionnaire and instead say, I don't want to be interviewed. I want to interview people. And so that takes us to today with you, Eve. We just recorded our first podcast, so I'm feeling a lot less nervous than I was an hour ago. Yeah. So, so for the sake of listeners who are kind of worrying about, you know, I, I, I maybe want to do this, but I don't know how I'd go. I'm nervous. Uh, talk us through kind of the last last hour. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm very much a nerd. So I spent all last night studying really hard and reading up about who I was interviewing because I didn't want to be caught off guard and not knowing something uh, because that, as a type A, is my greatest fear. An hour ago I was sitting with my notes open on my lap, my iPad open with the questions I was going to ask and then realised that a lot of podcasting is actually just having a chat with someone who knows a lot of stuff. And that's quite fun. And it's not at all like an exam. So it's a bit liberating, isn't it? Just, yeah, yeah, you can talk to interesting people and ask them about what they're interested in. Yeah. And and why they care about the climate, which is an easy answer. That's right. And in our case today, we get to do this from the comfort of your own home. So I was in Melbourne, you're in Sydney, and our guest was in Perth. Yeah. What a time to be alive. (laughs) and to to be uh, practicing social isolation. It's wonderful. (laughs) So um, for the sake of listeners who uh, we'll see in the gigantic and varied climactic feed of episodes, if they see the name Eve Brennan come up, what can they kind of expect from you in future? What are the kind of episodes you're looking to do and conversations you're excited about having? So I trained as a marine scientist and I currently work as an environmental educator, but I also work evaluating the Antarctic treaty system. So 
I want to do a series of work about how our oceans and how we as humans interact with our oceans are really profoundly affecting our climate and particularly how, you know, we live on a blue planet and that Mm. we can continue to do that by taking care of our oceans. And the second thing that you'll probably be hearing from me is that I'm really interested about the sort of mental health side of climate and, you know, how we can sort of do better in as a community coming together and not just surviving in climate change but really actually living in a changing climate. So that's what yeah. I'm all about. That's really exciting, Eve. I'm, I'm so happy you're on board. I can't wait to hear those episodes. Um, I'm looking forward to learning so much myself. Yeah, I'm sure I speak for everyone hearing this to say, yeah, welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> so we'll get into the interview now with Matt from the Marine Stewardship Council. But you'll hear me and Eve again at the end of the episode to kind of wrap up the interview we just had. Talk to you then. So today we're talking sustainable fisheries and the climate crisis. The Marine Stewardship Council is an international body seeking sustainable exploitation, which I guess isn't a very friendly word, but sustainable use of marine resources. But that's just my take from a little bit of research. So our guest today knows a lot more than I do, and he's Matt, and he's the Senior Fisheries Outreach Manager for MCS Oceania. So Matt, first thing, you probably have to describe your job to people a lot and where you work and what they do. Can you take us through that a little bit now? Yeah, sure thing. So the MSC is a charity that looks at sustainable fishing around the world. Uh, we try and use that consumer power to, to kind of incentivize uh, consumers to re- make the right choice. My role within this organization is to talk to people, to talk to uh, fishers, uh, to governments, and to really showcase where the value lies with sustainable fishing. Uh, why they should align to our sustainability values uh, and make that choice and empower these guys to talk about their sustainability journey. Um, and really, they just do that within the MSC framework. So I, I really talk a lot. I, I spend a lot of time on the road talking to fishers across my region. So in any day, that could be a polar line fisher in Indonesia, right through to a deep water trawler in New Zealand. Uh, I'm really talking to a big spread of stakeholders uh, in my patch. So Matt, that's a really good description of kind of your day-to-day and, and what your role is, and also a bit more about MSC and, and how it uh, creates a framework that the fishing industry can work within. But um, sort of broadly speaking, what's the uh, approach to marine stewardship being used at MSC, and, and what are the goals of the organization? Well, our vision is for uh, both healthy oceans and sustainable seafood. So I really think that vision is one of balance. Um, we're finding um, the need for seafoods increasing. We're, we're looking at our population of 9 billion by 2050. So uh, we need to think about sustainable exploitation. And you're right, that word isn't particularly friendly, but uh, when it comes to putting food onto plates, it's incredibly important. Uh, the UN have found recently that 20 of the 30 poorest countries on the world uh, rely on seafood as a main source of protein. So I think there's um, both an opportunity, an economic opportunity, but also a social responsibility uh, to fish our ocean sustainably. 
there's so many billions of dollars of lost value by not fishing sustainably that MSC's kind of stewardship is really to uh, showcase the best and move the rest. So if we can show to uh, fishers around the world, and that's big, small, uh, global south, developed worlds, anyone has the potential to meet our requirements if they really think about it. So what we're doing is incentivizing and transition, um, maybe through a bit of healthy competition to say, well, these guys have got MSC and they've got this, this market access or this new, uh, new benefit that comes with sustainability. We want that too. And we're prepared to put in the investment to make the changes needed to, to showcase our sustainability. Wonderful. And I'm, I'm curious to get into more about how MSC offers that incentive to the fishing industry. You know, through that, that labeling, through the framework, through the access to markets. The listeners to this program are here. They're listening to Climactic because they are concerned about climate change and they are aware of and engaged with the climate crisis. Is climate change a factor in most of the issues that MSC sees the industry facing? It's definitely omnipresent. I, I feel it does kind of uh, feature quite heavily in some areas and more discreetly in others. These climate change variabilities that we encounter, I mean, fisheries have encountered a natural climate variation for millennia. Uh, but what we're seeing now is this kind of the severity seems to be increasing. Uh, and we're seeing this lag between the climate change impacts and the management's ability to keep on top of the, uh, the changes that are needed in sustainable fisheries to, uh, to make sure that kind of the, the fishery catch rates remain sustainable. So, so we're, we're very aware that uh, uh, fisheries need adaptive management to maintain a sustainable fishery. Uh, and what I mean by adaptive management is the ability for the regulator to respond to these environmental fluctuations. But it goes deeper than that. We're seeing that um, there's a predator-prey change a relationship. We're seeing that ocean acidification can affect uh, those creatures that need to create a shell to survive. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of changes that are happening. And that's just in the catch sector. Then you have to think about what the supply chain are doing, where the packaging comes from. And although MSC only looks at a few key areas uh, of that story, uh, we're finding that climate change is definitely a conversation that's happening more regularly. Even in the 12 years that I've been working in the space, uh, I'm seeing that climate change is higher and higher up the agenda each time we, re we visit these issues. So we're here today because like you said, Climate change is becoming omnipresent in fisheries and in all of our decision making. And particularly what's going on in Western Australia, where the abalone fishery has been decimated by a marine heat wave in 2011, and that there's been another marine heat wave spreading in 2019. So Matt, would you mind telling us a bit more about what's going on in Western Australia? Yeah, hi Eve. Um... Definitely. I should make it clear that I'm not a climate expert. Um, I do work around a lot of good climate scientists, uh, and those are the guys that try and align their work within our sustainable management expectations. So the examples that I'm going to lean on today really come from the scientists working in Western Australia that have kind of researched this 2011 marine heat wave and are starting to kind of get a bit fidgety around what's recently happening with uh, warming waters uh, once again around Australia. So in 2011, uh, we saw a category four, which is the most extreme uh, marine heat wave uh, encountered in Western Australia. What it meant was that we were facing uh, up to four degrees increase in, in sea surface temperatures uh, across the West Australian coastline. 
this is bad news for some species. It's actually also good news for others. Uh, what we saw was that marine invertebrates, which uh, don't have the ability to escape those hot, uh, hotter waters, uh, they really they really suffered. Um, and what we saw uh, kind of taking the place was some of the more tropical species making this, uh, a shift from their northerly waters into more southerly latitudes uh, and taking up new spaces in the ecosystem. I guess um, abalone in particular, uh, a type of sea snail, uh, are incredibly slow moving. They kind of spend a lot of their time on the same reef for most of their lives. Uh, they don't go too far. Uh, so when you see a four degree spike in, um, in ocean temperatures, uh, those guys just cannot deal with that level of stress. And quite often you're seeing uh, up to a 99% mortality within that historic range of that species. So there's a huge impact for fishers, um, a 99% mortality. What can you do but close down your fishery? Uh, and that leads to all sorts of economic and social turmoil. Uh, fishers are unable to catch any fish. Uh, they have no income. It leads to other social pressures, uh, which has all been well captured in that 2011 heat wave. And I guess the questions are now, what can we learn from that? How can we adapt quicker? Uh, if these things are gonna be the new normal going into the future, uh, what can the managers do to kind of adapt to that response? Yeah, okay. And so from what I can read, the main adaptive response from the MSC and the Western Australian abalone fishery was to close the Moore River yeah. fishery, I think. Yeah. And so, so what, apart from that, what did adaptation from that marine heat wave entail? Certainly, uh, because of the extent of the WA coastline, we're seeing that uh, fisheries um, are kind of zoned into certain areas. Uh, the way that abalone fishery performed in the more northerly reaches of that fishery compared to how it performed under those heatwave conditions in the more southerly areas of that fishery were quite different. But yeah, uh, north of Moore River, there was that 99% mortality that was encountered. And as a result, we decided, or the managers decided to close the fishery. Uh, that was the only option they really had with that level of mortality. But also you're looking at um, what they can do to bring that kind of fishery back to a healthy level. How can they restock um, the, uh, the abalone? Uh, do they need to move abalone from a healthy part of that fishery through to the heat affected areas? Or do they uh, think about uh, other ways to enhance the stock? So the, the managers were looking for ways to rebuild the fishery. And MSC, uh, through the time, uh, was looking at um, the health of the biomass what, uh, what abalone were left, but also making sure that that rebuilding plan was in line with expectations. Uh, it wasn't taking too long. The commercial harvest wasn't too high too early uh, and things like that. Okay, so the way that you, like the MSC's role was to ensure that the catch limits weren't so high that the repopulation project was compromised by fishing too much too soon. Essentially, I mean, the MSC is a tool that regulators tend to use to help inform their management decisions. Um, the MSC only came onto the scene in Western Australia uh, in this fishery from around 2013. So uh, we were being looked at in a kind of in a kind of um, reactive space, I guess. Uh, the heat wave had happened. The mortality was there. Uh, then the regulators and the state government looked towards MSC and say, how can the MSC standard help inform our management decisions, but also how can it help markets uh, trust that we are making the right calls with regards to the management in such fisheries? You just said that the MSC 
took up a reactive space in light of the 2011 marine heat wave. Given that that was record breaking and correlated with a record breaking La Nina event, mm -hmm. now that we're getting marine heat waves, so we had another, they, there was another marine heat wave in December 2019 that wasn't associated with a La Nina event. How is the Western Australian government partnered with the MSC taking these events uh, more proactively rather than waiting for these climate events to drive them? It's a good question. Um, yes, it's, it's really hard to control these events. Um, in fisheries management, you have natural mortality and you have uh, fishing industry mortality. Um, these kind of uh, events would probably fall into that natural mortality, although you could definitely argue that they're being increasingly driven by by humans through the kind of changes we're encountering in the climate. But the ability to control that natural mortality is particularly tough, especially when um, you're looking at kind of global oceanographic conditions. Um, so I think there's always going to have to be an element of uh, reactiveness to uh, environmental variability. Uh, but what the, the management decision is now is that you have these performance indicators within the fishery. Uh, you're looking at catch rates, you're looking at environmental performance indicators to give the managers the best possible uh, advice with regards to how the fishery is trending and what they can do to kind of make sure that the fishing mortality as the only thing you can control is, uh, is under check uh, to make sure that um, if, uh, if things are looking particularly bad in, uh, in the near future, what can we do uh, using those performance indicators to measure the risk and the, the way the fishery is performing, uh, what can you do to kind of limit the impacts of the fishing industry uh, on that natural stock? So it sounds to me, Matt, like in some places, the best way to kind of make it a sustainable fishery or to protect the natural resources is to not allow exploitation. And I guess that's on a case by case basis. But how do you then square that against, you know, what if there is a local population, uh, uh, you know, coastal population, a traditional fishing population? Uh, in these third world, world countries um, that do rely on that stock. Um, how do you kind mm -hmm. of, I understand this is a particular edge case that gets pretty hairy and talks about social justice, but have you personally in your working career had that experience where you're having to weigh against the viability of a fishery versus the, the local needs uh, of an impoverished community? Definitely. Yeah. If only things were black and white, hey, yeah. it would be great. Um, what we find is that the environmental stuff is great. It's um, it's a very easy way to define what you should do mm -hmm. with your management. Good response. and bad things to do. Exactly. But, but then you throw in your social, your um, your financial elements into that and your political as well. Uh, it's politically incredibly damaging to be shutting down fisheries because mm -hmm. the environment can't handle the fishing pressure for, for whatever reason whether it's overfishing or whether it's through climate variation. Uh, so the politicians quite often say, well, I know the science is this, but these are the, the social parameters or these are the political parameters we need to work in, which is where you see this deviation between um, what the science says and what the policymakers decide, mm -hmm. uh, because they're having to incorporate all those other voices into the most sensible decision making uh, for uh, whatever the needs of the fishery are. Yeah, considerations beyond the science. Absolutely. And we know there's fisheries uh, across the world, not just in uh, developing world countries, but also in um, other countries where the fisheries are knowingly taken below the kind of biological limits. Uh, 
Uh, and some people scratch their heads and say, how is that allowed? Mm -hmm. uh, but it is for food security, although uh, admittedly, if the fishery was allowed to recover, the security of that food source would be enhanced. Mm -hmm. uh, but that has to be done over a time frame which supports the community, which supports jobs. And that's where we're seeing this kind of somewhat disconnect between the realities on the ground and some of those policy decisions that are made. And yeah, it's, it's not always MSC's case as a, uh, as a standard setter to get involved in those political decisions. If I can kind of paraphrase that, it's um, someone's going to be there to set the rules. And then if someone else is going to break those rules or bend them for what seems to be a good reason to them, um, you, you can't yeah, take that into account when you set the rules. They have to be based on the best evidence and, and you know, the, this is what you should be doing, but we understand yeah. that life happens. I think that's one of the strengths of the MSC program at the same time. Uh, the rule book is clearly defined before uh, every stakeholder signs on the dotted line. Uh, the harvest strategy is that suite of rules that's kind of put together to say, if this happens, this is our response. And you have your industry, your regulator, and quite often you have your wider marine stakeholders buying into that harvest strategy and starting to understand that this is a rule book. These are the rules we're going to play by. And if we do encounter a further heat wave, uh, we acknowledge that this is likely to be the decision that is made. In terms of marine heat waves, they're increasing in frequency and severity, and it's not a question of if but when. And so you said that the rules are set in stone in the contract before they sign up to the NSC certification process. What what sort of things are fisheries signing up for in order to recover from marine heat waves? And have you ever had to decertify a fishery as a result of an environmental collapse? Yeah, I guess that's some great questions, Eve. Um, certainly, we, we don't define what rules are used. Uh, we ask that the rules are appropriate for the fishery. So um, in some fisheries that are managed by quotas, a rule might be if such a environmental variability, if such environmental variability happens, uh, your quota might be cut by a percentage. In other fisheries that don't have quotas, they have other controls. They might say if we're encountering the uh, effects of a marine heat wave, you might find that your fishing season is shortened by half or that you can only use half the number of hooks in your fishery. And that's the kind of management response we want to see. There's levels of severity. Uh, as you get closer to your biological limits, what the fishery uh, can handle before recruitment is impaired, uh, i.e. the point where there's so few uh, marine species left that they, they find it hard to repopulate. Uh, the rules become harder and more severe. Uh, but again, this is all information that is um, pre-agreed uh, with the stakeholders involved in the fishery. I think for, the, for those rules, they need to be reviewed regularly. Uh, we ask that these rules are reviewed every five years to check for relevance. And I think, like we've been saying, uh, the severity of marine heat waves alongside the general sea surface temperature trends is increasing. So uh, checking those rules is still relevant every five years is a really important thing to consider. And it, it matters. Uh, there are fisheries around the world uh, which have found themselves either suspended or having to withdraw from the MSC programme uh, and many stakeholders would argue that's as a result of uh, climate variation. Uh, I think there's a great case in the Northeast Atlantic with mackerel. Um, it's a very popular species in European markets, 
Um, many consumers go and eat the mackerel in various forms. Uh, but what we're seeing is that warming waters uh, are leading to the mackerel trying to find colder waters. So there's only two ways that can happen. Uh, a species can go into deeper water or they can go into more northerly or southerly latitudes, depending on what part of the hemisphere you're looking at. So these mackerel are finding it a bit too warm where they were previously living. Uh, so they're heading into more northerly latitudes uh, and the industry, uh, which have fished mackerel for generations, are continuing to chase those mackerel into more northerly latitudes. But then you start to bring new countries into the mix, whereas historically, uh, places like Iceland, Greenland, uh, Russia weren't catching too much mackerel. Now they're finding it on the doorstep. So this is great. We'll, we'll catch this mackerel. Thank you very much. Uh, yet the historic fishers, those guys operating from the UK, Norway, uh, into the other parts of Europe are saying, but that's our fish. Uh, and you're seeing this conflict where uh, these uh, industry players uh, can't agree uh, who has access to that fishery. As a result, they're arguably taking a bit too much fish from the ocean. Uh, and that falls, without M that falls outside of MSC's rulebook. And as a result, that fishery has been suspended. So definitely uh, a, a climate related uh, case study uh, and also uh, an issue of um, member states not working particularly well together to come uh, together to agree how the cake should be sliced when it comes to accessing that mackerel fishery. Yeah, I understand. That's a really difficult balance to strike. And so, yeah, that's the kind of story us consumers who are concerned about climate change are hearing about a lot of that uh, change in latitude, that change in um, in range of where fish are found and where they're they're being caught. And we are concerned about overfishing and overexploitation. How can us consumers kind of use that to incentivize good behavior and punish bad behavior? Uh, for me, just as a consumer, um, how can I take the information that MSE is giving me and, and act on it to in, provide an incentive for good players in the industry? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And I think um, fishery science is hugely complex. I think uh, a famous scientist once said, uh, counting fish is like counting trees apart from you can't see these fish and they and they move so you're finding yourself like really subject to these really difficult uh scientific uh research um positions which means that uh a lot of work goes into the msc assessments you're bringing in all kinds of scientists and researchers and stakeholders into the msc program asking them all of these questions uh and at the end of the day all of this really great science is happening and it's alignment to the MSC program at the highest level what you have is a blue fish tick in the supermarket mm -hmm. and then below that you have all of these tiers of science and it's all transparent so depending on your level of interest you can go and dig into that science yourself but what we're doing really at the highest level is empowering consumers that see that blue fish tick if we can show them that uh, there's credibility behind that blue fish tick and that we are genuinely interested in a sustainable future for our fisheries and for our ocean, it empowers you as a consumer to say, I know that blue fish tick, I believe in it, and I'm going to reward those fishes that are buying, uh, that are fishing sustainably, that are adapting to these uh, climate variations where they can. And it empowers not just the consumer, but it empowers everyone working back through that supply chain, back to the fisher at sea, uh, catching that fish within a management system, which notes that, ah, Climate, climate is changing. We might see a marine heat wave. We're definitely seeing increased sea surface temperatures. Uh, and this is our management response to keep this fishery sustainable. Mm -hmm. 
the empowerment there is fantastic because what it means, as I said earlier, is that other fishers look uh, and think, well, they're getting rewarded. We like the MSC concept. We need to make a few adjustments to our management system. And as a result, uh, when you buy that can of John West tuna, which has a blue fish tick on it, it creates this theory of change, which then kind of uh, brings others. Uh, some of them are kicking and screaming. They hate the concept, but others are there being proactive and saying, how can we capitalize on our sustainability journey and showcase that we're doing the right thing? Now, quickly, you, you named you know John West there, and I'm, I'm glad we've you know, brought up at least one brand. So now we've touched that third rail. We can talk about maybe a few companies. And yeah. I understand that no company is ever perfect, 100% perfect. Um, understand that even if they've got a great management plan, you know, somebody might have got fired for a bad reason and has a grudge against them. So let's not you know, say that you know, someone who has the tick is maybe perfect and someone who doesn't is, is you know, totally mm. imperfect. But um, I'm encouraged that by at least requiring a management plan, for that tick, just by requiring a plan at all, uh, it stops the company just going out, catching as much as it can, um, you know, maximizing profit as much as it can, with now no thought to the future or of resource management. Um, it really encourages me to know that what that tick means when I go shopping. So very quickly, um, who would you like to see join MSC next? MSC is a very good question. Nicely worded. Um, <laughs> MSC doesn't name and shame. We don't name and shame fisheries that aren't aligned, aligned to our requirement. <laughs> and we don't name and shame uh, retailers or others in that space that aren't, uh, uh, aren't choosing MSC as a ring goal. And MSC is not the only tool out there. There's other ways that sustainability can be measured and we respect those. Um, but there's definitely gaps. And MSC sometimes gets challenged because we work with the, the biggest operators. Um, the way to achieve our vision and mission according to the way we operate our program is to engage with the big retailers is to quite often engage with big fisheries it doesn't mean we don't engage with small retailers or small fisheries but that's where we get best bang for our buck that's where our ocean health can have the greatest impact and also those retailers they're sitting there at the highest point uh, holding an umbrella in a lightning storm uh, so they've got the greatest amount of social accountability so they quite often come to the MSC and saying, we're getting asked more and more about sustainable fishing. Um, can MSC help provide solutions? And we, we showcase them the program and they say that works for us or that's not quite right for our fit. And um, as a voluntary program, it, it's, uh, it's really empowering to see the kind of the snowball effect that we're seeing with the retail space around the world. With regards to, with regards to brands, I'm not going to name any brands or any supermarkets, but Definitely, um, we have uh, kind of uh, databases on our website that you can go and say, I'm a consumer living in Melbourne and uh, I want to buy sustainable fish locally. And you can then start to see those guys that are selling sustainable fish locally. And then you can start to see the gaps for yourselves. And I'm not asking you not to shop there, but I'm perhaps asking you to say, hey, uh, hey, retailer, why aren't you selling MSC sustainable fish? And if consumers are asking those questions, you can guarantee that they'll pick up the phone to us uh, and say, oh, our consumers are asking for it. We see an opportunity here to communicate and market sustainable fish. And that's the theory of change uh, empowered by the consumer. And that's what we really like. Wonderful. It's good to see that theory of change language being picked up in the industry and in regards to yeah, resource conservation, because you know, theories of change are powerful concepts within social movements and within uh, you know, the climate activism space. There's a lot of talk about theories of change. And I, I personally really believe that without an idea of, of how to get to 
the thing you want, uh, you're, you're not going to get it. 100%. Yeah. Matt, thanks so much. I've got two more questions for you. Sure. In WA, and I'm hoping in most MSC certified fisheries, uh, you say that you have an ecosystem-based fisheries management approach. What does that mean in for the MSC? And how does that incorporate climate change into the broad ecosystem changes that we're observing in the marine environment? Yeah, so I guess historically, uh, fisheries have been managed on target stocks. If you're catching a blue swimmer crab, uh, the fishery regulator has mostly wanted to make sure that the blue swimmer crab population is healthy. MSC asks a bit more of the regulator and of the fishery. They're saying, absolutely, uh, there's a lot of focus that should be placed on your target stocks, like your blue swimmer crab. But when you're fishing for blue swimmer crab, what about your bycatch? And what about your bait? And what about the habitat interactions? And what about the ecosystem more generally? So we're starting to kind of broaden our perspective on what a sustainable fishery should look like. It's no longer just about target species. It's about the ecosystem more holistically. And by thinking about where the bycatch rates can be reduced or where the habitat interactions can be mitigated, I mean, these things are critically important for how an ecosystem functions. You can't have a healthy blue swimmer crab fishery without a healthy spawning habitat for those guys to, to live within. Can I just follow up with that? Um, so you say that you take a habitat-based approach up until the blue swimmer crab in this case. Do you also account for what is known as dependent and related species, which are the animals that prey on the target species as well as humans? Is that part of your approach into fisheries management? Yeah, so there's uh, ecosystem performance indicators that an embassy fishery has to meet. And that's when we're looking at uh, predator-prey relationships. What happens if you take too many tuna out of an area? Um, how does that affect the other trophic layers around that fishery? Uh, those kind of things, uh, we definitely ask for information from an MSC fishery. Um, the ecosystem requirements are quite loose because the way a fishery in Indonesia is going to perform compared to a fishery in Australia will be quite different. Um, but ultimately, we, we ask that if any kind of... Um, changes to a fishery like that are occurring that number one you have the data that backs it up number two you have a management response and number three you're looking at your ecosystem health more holistically to make sure that uh, any fishing impact is mitigated but it's um it's certainly new science it's certainly something because of the historic focus on target species this e this ecosystem stuff is catching up but it isn't necessarily always integrated into the regulators policies so, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of on the crest of the wave in terms of the new science that's happening in the marine space. Do you personally see a truly sustainable fishing industry as being something that's possible? And if so, what are some ways that it would be different to today? Yeah, I think for all of the good work that MSC and other stakeholders do in this kind of uh, sustainability space, the trends are still negative. We're seeing that um, there's increasing amounts of overfishing. We're seeing that less and less of our fish resources are underfished or underutilized. Uh, and we're seeing this space where a lot of fisheries are kind of heading towards their maximum in terms of how much you can fish them before nudging them into that overfish space. Um, ideally, the MSC program will halt that trend. Uh, it does need consumers to be aware of the, the power of that blue fish stick. And uh, we encourage uh, people to shop with that in mind. But yeah, the, uh, the future. 
I, I remain optimistic, I guess. I think that um, when kind of rubber hits the road and things get a bit tight with regards to fishery performance, um, I, I still think that stakeholders will do the right thing. But the future has to be more integrated. And I think that's a kind of self-criticism of MSC. Like we look at environmental sustainability uh, and we do that well, but we need to think about these bigger issues. Um, should MSC um, work with fisheries that are climate neutral, uh, that have uh, offset their carbon, uh, those kind of things should be considered. And also the, the carbon uh, output per kilo of fish um, is definitely better than uh, quite often terrestrial sources of protein. But what more can we be doing to incentivize uh, our partners in the program to kind of think about sustainability more holistically? And these are probably questions as much for our board in regards to what direction we go. Every five years, MSC takes stock of its performance and its requirements, and we, we tweak these requirements. We're now looking to integrate in 2020 uh, ghost gear, uh, requirements. So if a fishery loses gear, what can we do to kind of uh, reduce that environmental impact? Uh, so that's the way in which the MSC program involves. And who knows, in the future, we might be more explicit with regards to what we expect with regards to how a fishery interacts with uh, unprecedented climate challenges. Um, these are just some examples of where the MSC program has flexibility and does adapt to meet best practice science. And there's a paper from the CSIRO that came out with about touching on that ghost gear that says that about 70% of ghost gear that's lost at sea is when people, fish are, fishers are taking a risk and going out into weather that they probably don't need to be going into. So coming back to that social aspect of MSC and incorporating that there's always a social element to the environmental outcomes and sustainability, particularly in fisheries. Yeah, no, it's a really important point that um, you can't treat these environmental expectations in isolation from the social. So it's um, the two are integrated. And also um, the reality is society is more powerful than sometimes it gives itself credit for. We, we see quite regularly. Uh, I think the marine plastics on the back of Blue Planet 2 this that was unprecedented response uh, we hadn't previously seen it but i think slowly uh, the world's waking up to the power that we have and that politicians will listen to what society expects so it's, it's definitely worth integrating that uh that human voice into these scientific discussions always matt thanks so much for coming on it's been a pleasure thanks eve yeah thank you matt cheers no worries thank you All right, so we've just wrapped that up, Eve. Um, Matt was great. Yeah, this is the first time I think we've had on like a spokesman for a group, especially like an industry group, like the Marine Stewardship Council. And uh, he he really could talk, couldn't he? Yeah, he was he was definitely a talker, but he was talking about good stuff. So he was, he really was, and um, we we covered a lot of ground. And I'm sure I'm sure the listeners would have noticed as well that there was a lot in there that we could have talked about, but we didn't. We didn't address. Uh, marine plastic. We only talked about, you know, ghost gear a little bit. We didn't talk about mercury levels and fish and stuff because uh, it's almost like, Eve, as someone who studied marine science, I assume for years and years, it's almost like there's a lot to know and a lot to talk about in this topic. It's almost like there's 90% of biodiversity on earth to cover in 
the marine environment, especially if you're taking an ecosystem-based approach. So there's a lot to unpack, and in a changing climate, it's important that we unpack it. Is it bad that as like Climactic's resident non-vegan, that when you say 90% of the world's biodiversity in relation to seafood, I kind of get hungry? No, I do have a story <laughs> where I was stand-up paddleboarding in Tasmania. I'll tell it quickly. And Please, uh, you, you can't sh- start a sentence, yeah. I have a story, I have a and story. not tell the story. So I was stand-up paddleboarding in Tasmania and a tuna came and swam up underneath my board and just looked at me and and dived back into the depths and it was incredible, like it was this huge tuna. And I got out and I told my sister, I called my sister and I told her all about it and her response was, I love tuna. (laughs) (laughs) That ruined it. But (laughs) Good for me at the well, time. Do you think that the tuna was sizing you up for a meal? I, I know, yeah, they, tuna are not, are they prey fish? Are they hunters? They're hunters, not mm. not to things my size. I think they probably yeah. just didn't know what I was. But speaking of size, right, like most people only interact with tuna in a tiny little can the size of like a bit bigger than a 50 cent piece. And it's just like, this tuna would have been six foot or something, right? Something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It was so I have a ten foot board and it was almost as long as my board. <laughs> Big fish. Amazing. Yeah. So so the topic, yeah, today of, of fishing and making that hopefully sustainable so we continue to have these fish indefinitely, because this is it's just this is a pet peeve of mine. And and you tell me if I'm crazy, Eve, but uh, because sustainability gets talked about in so many different ways and and formats and, and different uses of the word, it really bugs me when people say sustainable, but they don't mean that, that thing could keep going indefinitely, like forever. Because that's my version of sustainability. It's like, if we're going to keep having a fishing industry sustainably, that means we'll have a fishing industry in 10,000 years. Yeah. Is that weird? No, I think so what that reminded me of is that, yeah, um, our First Nations people here in Australia mm. think seven generations forward and seven generations back. And in doing so, they developed systems that lasted tens of thousands of years. And so mm. if we think of at that scale, which we need to start doing, like, yeah, we've got to develop systems that are sustainable in a really on a geological time scale because that's yeah. how long our environment and our oceans have been alive and and will continue to go on with or without us i mean like we've we've left a mark on the planet already at the geological level i'm sure everyone listening already knows this but i mean the the impact we've left with plastics and other man-made materials uh that's not going away in millennia um, so hopefully by thinking in the longer time scales that, you know, the species of us might be around that long as well as all of our stuff. Yeah. And in the short term, I think, so in Antarctica at least, uh, there's now voluntary climate impact statements for all the fisheries. And I mm. think that's a really important step is to not only have that fisheries have what Matt was talking about in the sense of, Uh, creating an adaptive framework for their fisheries management, but also actively monitoring the climate impacts of not only their fishery and their heart target species, but the ecosystem in which 
their target species lives. Because when fisheries do that, they can help our understanding and help scientists understand what's going on in our oceans rather than just yeah. harvest. And by getting used to doing that, that level of management at the ecosystem level for the current environment, uh, that means that they'll at least have the thinking in place, if not maybe the direct tools, but they'll be able to start coping with when that environment is changing. Uh, they're like, we're already seeing changes now, but as it continues to change and accelerate in that change, if you're just looking at just numbers, uh, you're going to be totally flat-footed. Um, yeah, especially when a marine heat wave, to be categorized as a marine heat wave, it only has to last five days. So, you know, things can change pretty fast. You know? Yeah. And there's nowhere to go in, in the oceans to get away from that heat. It's not like a, a land-based heat wave where, you know, we, we go through five-day heat waves on land regularly now every Australian summer, and we can escape to a mall, a theater, indoors to under AC. But those marine creatures, if they're not able to dive deep enough or find a, a cool patch of ocean, there's, there's no hiding from it. No, which means that we need to start, you know, thinking about it and actively and you know, I would say proactively, or to use the technical term, taking a precautionary approach to that risk, mm -hmm. which is growing one. Yeah. It's obvious there's there's so much more to this topic than we were able to discuss with Matt today. It was just the one conversation. We had a limited time and we wanted to kind of focus on what MSC does and, and one report, especially about the abalone fisheries in Western Australia. But if this has sparked any interest in you in the greater topic of the oceans and the intersection with the climate crisis, just let us know. Drop us an email to hello at climactic.fm and I'll make sure it gets to the right person or uh, reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, there'll be links in the show notes to how you can find out more about Matt, about MSC, about Eve, and about all the things we do at Climactic. Um, but for now, is there any kind of final thoughts you've got on, um, on where you want to go next after this interview, uh, Eve? What, what's next for you? Yeah, so building on this topic, I'm excited to really dig deep into what the social exploitation as well as the ecological exploitation that's going on in our international fisheries and highlighting how where we have really profound biodiversity loss, we also often can trace really serious human exploitation and how that environmental justice issue propagates in our fisheries. So that's where you can hear me next. Exciting. I, I can't wait to, to follow you on to that topic and, and hear more about it. All right. Signing off from us. Thank you for joining us for another Climactic episode. I hope you like this new format. It's great to have uh, this kind of chat. It, it sounds like the podcast I listen to now, finally. And yeah, looking forward to bringing you the next one. Bye. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times.
this show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.